and also part of it, a reaction to uh, the cockroach name. Try to, I'm sure you, uh, you experienced this. I had to explain to my mom um, that I was, after my PhD, going to work at Cockroach Labs. She uh, had, had a fit about this. What is up, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. In today's episode of the Big Ideas in App Architecture podcast, we really get into some big ideas as we speak to Arjun Narayan, the CEO and co-founder of Materialize, the company behind the innovative streaming database that's changing the way enterprises process their streaming data. We also get into Arjun's journey from being a researcher to now running a company and what led him to co-found Materialize. We delve into the evolution of distributed systems as well as an interesting research paper and architecture that led to the central solution that Materialize is now offering to the industry. So without further ado, let's jump into it. So one of the most fascinating things uh, for me uh, always is the journey that somebody takes to where they are today, right? Um, so when I was looking at your background, I found two anomalies. Well, I would say one anomaly that really intrigued me. And the, that was, uh, you have a background in liberal arts, and then you went on to do a PhD in computer science. And then you had a, a great stint at Cockroach Labs before you, uh, you know, found it, you know, materialized. So these are two uh, fields that I don't really see coming together often on a pap- on paper. What happened there? Like, how did you decide to do liberal arts, and what fascinated you there? And then from there into computer science. So I grew up in India, and as with many people who grew up in India, I was very focused on uh, math, science, uh, and uh, engineering. Right. So this is not an uncommon uncommon phenomenon uh, growing up in India. Uh, I sort of had a violent rejection of that as as the pressure mounted and uh, as I got closer and closer to college. And I was sort of looking around for, hey, what else could I be doing with my life? Um, and that's sort of how I discovered that liberal arts colleges even existed. And I f- was extremely drawn to that sort of broad-based education. So I ended up at Williams College in Western Massachusetts, um, that was sort of how I, that was the first time I came to America. Um, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. But there was sort of in the back of my mind, um, the sort of guilt that, uh, so I took a computer science class just to sort of keep that at bay, right? Um, and little did I know, because at that point, I did not really have an understanding that computer science was like a rigorous academic field with a lot of deep theoretical structure. To me, it was like, well, like I need to make sure that I can get a job as a, you know, in the software programming minds, digging code. I didn't really understand. Um, And I found myself completely captivated by theoretical computer science, algorithms, and sort of all of the mathematical structure that there was to computer science. That was really when I really first discovered that computer science was a, as an academic field, as opposed to software engineering as a practice. Um, and so it was one of many things that I studied. Uh, I, I, I really enjoyed studying history, economics, uh, philosophy, math. Uh, and at the end of that, or towards the end of that journey, rather, um, I felt the pull of saying like, well, I wish I could go deeper and I hadn't gone deep enough. And that's one of the things that you won't find, you'll find pretty common amongst liberal arts uh, students is, you know, the breadth is nice, but it does come at an opportunity cost of the depth. And that's how I decided to do a PhD in computer science. Because at that point I'd gotten pretty sucked in and, and wanted to go deeper. 
Um, I considered a few different ways to do that. The, the, the subfields that I found most interesting were networking, uh, architecture, or you know, microprocessors and the hardware aspect of computer science. Um, not quite all the way into electrical engineering and sort of fabrication, but sort of the design and the compilers aspect of 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 you know getting as close to the wire without getting all into solid state in physics and uh, operating systems and databases. And ultimately, I I went to Penn for a PhD, uh, sort of to work with a with a professor who was dabbling in networking and in uh, operating systems and distributed systems and, and got into distributed systems more sort of as an accident of uh, uh, the projects, the, the specific projects that he was working on that I, I found myself drawn to. And when I was studying distributed systems, the recurring theme that I was getting, and this was in the early 2010s um, was that the distributed systems people seem to be rediscovering a lot of things that were originally discovered two decades prior by the database people. And uh, that's how I sort of got sucked into databases as what I felt was the um, principled way uh, that, that had the most sort of historical depth to, uh, and, and so it's sort of long, long-winded story, but you know, that they have it. Uh, it's a great story. It's a great story. So, uh, so what was like? So, gr- growing up, you didn't have uh, any specific, you know, computer science interest in college, or so. What was your subject in 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 school? I wanted to be a theoretical physicist. So that was very much through. I was very captivated by physics. It seemed to have a lot of the sort of answer, or or it seemed to be the field that was asking the deep questions, right? Like, what is the nature of the universe? Like, uh, things like that. Um, and so I was very captivated by physics. I think part of that was just a little, I don't want to say out of date, but you know, I, I definitely feel that physics was, say, the middle of the 20th century, pushing the envelope on asking sort of fundamental, deep existential questions. Um, and it's only when I realized that there was a thing like, theoretical computer science that was asking fundamental questions around the nature of computation and, and, and even creating some sort of theoretical rigor around even defining what that even is, um, that I felt that, you know, I know, I know, I, I would, I, I maybe pause it now that theoretical computer science is the field that is asking a similar level of deep question around sort of the nature of, 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 of existence in the universe. No, I mean, I I wouldn't disagree, you know, but so the one thing I wanted to say was like, there's, that's one thing in common because I wanted to be a theoretical physicist too. <laughs> and I love physics, you know, like the whole idea of existential questions and nature of quantum. And uh, I really thought about that. But then growing up in India, I mean, there was a, there were two fields that we naturally had to pick. Either you went into the sciences or you went into becoming like somebody in a doctor or something, right? So we had that, uh, what do you pick, you know? So physics or doing something with physics was not as much as, you know, that I wasn't aware of what I could do after I do physics, you know? So that led me into software. Right. I think um, one way to phrase it, it was very much you were forced to think about very directly applicable or directly um, career applicable fields, and we both had a draw to the theoretical, more philosophical fields, um, and and the one that 
the first one was physics. Yes, yeah. I mean, you won't believe it. Like, or like, I've been following a lot of stuff that um, is happening in the field of physics, right? Like, in my free time, like last week, I was reading and watching a video on quantum entanglement, and especially fascinated by Elon starting a new company called XAI, whose purpose is to understand the nature of the universe, right? So, physics and technology and computer science, I think there's there's a good intertwining of those ideas. So, it's fascinating. Uh, yes, I, I will. I will uh, plead the fifth on on anything related to Elon. But yes, <laughs> related to Elon. <laughs> well, let's take it at uh, that face value, right? So, interestingly, once you finish your PhD, uh, you know, I was cockroach really kind of uh, stumbled uh, or was or came upon uh, in a way as an interesting proposition for you to kind of pursue, and you joined the early Cockroach Labs team. Uh, at that time, and you know, had a significant contribution to a lot of things that kind of set the foundation for our company. So, how did Cockroach Labs kind of arrive? How did you decide to do that right after your PhD? Maybe it makes sense to talk a little bit about the research agenda that I did during my PhD because it's pretty pretty. Um, I was I was researching security and privacy aspects of distributed data, and as part of this, sort of spent a lot of time just talking or researching and reading about distributed data platforms and 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 architectures that were around right and in 2012 one of the papers that really caught my eye was the spanner paper because prior to spanner a lot of the zeitgeist in the in the research field as well as in the applied field so you sort of you rewind the clock to the late 2000s you know 2010 it was all, you know, the data is getting big. Everything was big data, right? So everyone's talking about big data. The data is too big to fit on a single machine. Therefore, you have to go to multi-machine. And multi-machine computation, it's too expensive to give users the abstraction layer or the um, look and feel of the single machine experience. It's easy to work in a single machine uh, or, or, or because the, there's only one sort of single threading. Now under the hood, it may be multi-threaded, but you can give this illusion of a single thread and that's easy to reason about. But you know, when you go to a multi-machine, the latencies are so much larger that it's too expensive to maintain that illusion. And, and, and users and programmers just have to grow up and deal with the fact that they have to manually deal with weak isolation, weak consistency. They just ha- like, you can't give them SQL anymore. They have to get good at working with lower level primitives. And that was very much the zeitgeist of all the systems that were being built at the time. And the Spanner paper sort of came back with a emphatic, no, you can have both of these things. You can have strong consistency and good performance at these massive scales. Here's how we did it at Google. And it was extremely refreshing to me because I had grown convinced that the difficulty of working with weak isolation and weakly consistent systems was just such a massive tax on productivity of any sort. And no one was getting much value out of these gigantic systems that you you had to essentially what I would describe now is you had to build the top half of a database, like you were on your own, right? You go build all the parts of the database that you need as a distributed system software engineering team. 
And so the Spanner paper in 2012 was a huge moment for, for the industry in general that, that sort of started to swing that back. And I was very much interested in working on a system or place. I, I, I decided around then that I did not want to stay an academic. I love my PhD. Um, this is a, the, the, there's some folks who love their PhD so much they they want to stay in academia forever. Some people who hate it enough that they don't that they want to leave academia forever. And I feel like it's underrepresented the group that I was in, which is I really enjoyed my time in academia, and I also knew fr- pretty quickly that I didn't want to stay. I was learning a lot, but I viewed it as a time in which I was learning about a lot of amazing systems. I was very excited to then take that knowledge and then apply it. Um, so. I was pretty set on getting a job in the software industry with all of this newfound knowledge. And I was very much looking for a spanner style take on things. Um, what I didn't expect to find, which, which, which I ended up finding in Cockroach, was quite literally a spanner based uh, database, sort of explicitly. Uh, explicitly building an open source version of Spanner at the time. Um, I, I, when I joined Cockroach, it was about, I want to say 20 people. Um, and, you know, they, they, it was pre-revenue, pre-everything, right? Like uh, the system didn't even really work. It, uh, it was, it was crashing all the time and all the tests were failing. So it was actually an extremely painful time to learn to <laughs> be part of a software engineering team. Uh, but it was really fun as well. I have dug up some old blogs where I think the company was pretty transparent about, hey, um, we're trying to run this database for 24 hours. We just want to get it up for 24 hours, you know? And it was fascinating for me to, uh, when, when I was researching Cockroach Labs, trying to get into the company, I was trying to understand the culture. And sometimes you don't get the culture when you have conversation, but rather by what the company has produced in material and documentation. So when I went and read some blogs, then I felt like there was this brutal honesty in some of the blogs, which I was like, this is fascinating. And I was coming from a company that was basically Cassandra-based, right? Like so, so to going back to your point of view of you know, no consistency, Cassandra kind of came out at a time where it was solving a particular problem, but there was no consistency. And the abstraction, you couldn't do so many things. Like there was no joins, there are no, uh, you know, can't do re- simple things that a developer wants to do on a SQL database, you can't do it on Cassandra. So that was a different era. Uh, you know, 2012, you have Hadoop, Hive, Pig, all these different projects kind of growing. Um, and then uh, 2017, 18 is to the time you were mentioning, right? I was thinking it's very interesting uh, that the brutal honesty at Cockroach Labs about what the system they were trying to build uh, was pretty interesting. So so you came into uh, that time of the company. Yeah, and that was very foundational for me in learning um, how to be brutally honest and the sort of compounding value that is gained in the trust when you are brutally honest. Uh, we very much tried to maintain that. I'm jumping ahead to materialize, but we very much tried to maintain that ethos at materialize because I think it worked really well uh, in building trust. I remember we would write, I, I think, I think, I, I think I know the blog post you were talking about where we, we said we wanted to keep a three node system up for 24 hours. And there was certainly some spicy comments on Hacker News about, you know, call yourself a database company. 24 hours is like so pathetic. What is What are these people doing? Um, and there was enough vitriol there that there were some folks, some more seasoned industry veterans who ended up 
um, responding, being like, you know, they're actually going about this in a very mature way uh, because it is very difficult and it takes years and years to stabilize any kind of big data system. Um, and what what they're doing is being transparent about the journey uh, because every system has to go through this. And it was very validating to see sort of the 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 hate and the love at the same time. And really convinced me there was a lot of value to doing this transparently because the reality is the experienced people, you can't bullshit them. Like they know that it's hard and it's going to take this long. Um, so you might as well focus on them and earning their trust as opposed to faking it. Like I think there's this instinct for when you're doing something really hard to sort of fake it till you make it or like try and pretend to be like, cause you know, it's super intimidating because the industry heavyweight is Oracle and, you know, they've been around for 50 years and they're super mature. Uh, and so you may, you think maybe in a sale, I have to sort of try and look as mature as I am, but it's like, uh, it, one, you're not going to win that fight because it doesn't matter how mature you seem. You're not 50 years old with billions of dollars of free cash flow, right? Like that's just not who you are. Um, you need to win the trust of the people who have the specific set of problems for which the decision in their mind is build versus buy. Because because if, if they're just buying a database out of the box, they're going with the tried and true. Like you've already lost those customers. You have to focus on the people for whom their only reasonable alternative is building an in-house system, which is going to be less mature than because you know it's that's effectively a database product project that's six months mature. So now you actually have an advantage in being a couple of years mature. So you might as well just talk about all the bugs you've solved, um, and and essentially being transparent about those bugs is the best way to win those people over because they they're gonna read that and be like, oh man, I'm if I'm gonna build my own system, I'm gonna have to solve all of these problems, and you know I'd rather not. No, I mean it's fascinating the way you're saying this. It it's it's truly you know, it's significant that what people don't understand what it takes to start a company. Uh, I mean, there are lots of startups that see uh, value feedback and, you know, revenue kind of come really quickly. But I think my opinion is database space is particularly difficult for startups uh, because um, it takes time before you start big cash flow, right? And you spend so much money on R&D uh, and, uh, and, you know, you really have to have a different approach. And I think that's what in a Cockroach Labs and Materialize, to, from my research, you have, as you were saying, that ethos of carrying that transparency uh, to your investors, to the people who are going to use your products that you're bringing. So, so from that point, let's dive into Materialize. You, did you always feel deep down inside that you were going to co-found a company at some point in your life? So it was definitely a possibility and something that I was reading about and sort of trying to keep educated. I knew I wanted to work at sort of a small company. Um, I, I, I very much would have been very happy working at Cockroach or working at a small startup and growing with that. Uh, one of the other papers that I had come across during my PhD after the Spanner paper was actually the same sort of conference circuit. Spanner was the best paper in 2012. This was the best paper in 2013. So literally the next year was uh, this research out of this uh, research group from Microsoft Research uh, called NIAD, a streaming system. And again, you have to rewind the clock a little bit, but back then streaming was in its absolute infancy. And for most streaming systems at the time were very, very uh, limited in the amount of 
complex computation they could do and the amount of state they could manage and update. And so if you were using a streaming system in earlier than 2010, you had to make these pretty strong, um, pretty severe compromises in the expressivity of the computation that you could express in the streaming system. And so you, on one hand, you had these batch systems like Hadoop or, 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 or so in which you could scale out quite dramatically and you could um, express a lot of complex computation and sort of multi-stage pipelines and things like that. And then, and, and, if, and, and of course it would take hours and hours, if not a day. And if you wanted something lower latency, you had to like severely restrict the kind of, you, know, you could maintain some counts and you could, uh, you know, not do very much more than that. And it turns out you can do a lot of things by just maintaining a bunch of counts and cleverly sort of doing some algebra at the end. Uh, but it's very different. You could you had no hope of doing a streaming join, right? Like streaming joins were just not a thing. And and enter Nyad, this paper that basically built a stream processor that was fully capable of doing everything that contemporary and batch processors could do. And you got the streaming kind of for free. Like it was, it 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 was one of these things that gracefully degraded into a batch system at absolutely no cost to the expressivity of the of the queries. It was you know outperforming batch systems at batch computation at batch queries, and outperforming streaming systems at streaming queries. It was really it was like hey, there's no trade off. This is a stateful, scale out stream processor. And I remember reading it, being like, well, like half of the research I've been reading about is is now obsolete. I remember. I was a pretty argumentative grad student. Uh, maybe that already comes through here. I don't know. But uh, you know, I, I remember going to my advisor being like, why are we reading this other junk? It's obsolete. They should like they their entire line of research is superseded by, you know, effectively ten lines on top of NIAD. Like they, we should stop building. At the time there, there was a lot of bespoke systems, graph computation um was one of the research areas where I felt had been completely sub- superseded by NIAD. Um, and I remember contacting the lead researcher on the NIAD project, Frank McSherry, who is my co-founder at Materialize Now, but back then just this industry uh, stalwart researcher uh, and, and uh, you know, seeing if he had an internship spot and turns out he did not at the time. So I, in the back of my mind, I always really loved that research project. I remember telling him, hey, you should commercialize your research project. Um, maybe you want to take a look at what these people are doing at Berkeley because it, going back, same group of research community um, in 2011, the best paper at a, at a different conference, but same sort of related field. Uh, was the Apache Spark people who had won the best paper for Apache Spark. And I was like, hey, these guys are starting a company. It's funded by Andreessen Horowitz. It's like pretty cool. You, if you, you, have you considered doing something like that? You know, if you are, let me know, because I'd love to sort of work there. I'd love to, where can I put in my application? They're just sort of like, I, I assumed he was going to commercialize NIAD. And he wasn't, he had no interest whatsoever. It was like, why would I do that? I just won best paper, like I'm done. Or, you know, like he, he was very much under the academic sort of influence of, you know, the thing to do is to publish more papers and win more awards. And, you know, and then the rest will just sort of follow because obviously everyone's reading these papers. And I was like, no, like no one that you have to do that yourself. And I remember this like tremendous disconnect between the two of us when we met at a conference, um, uh, and 
So I was sort of waiting for him to do something, and he wasn't doing anything. Eventually, in 2014 or 15, I forget, Microsoft Research went through this huge um, shift in they shut down the research lab in Silicon Valley. They downsized some of the other research labs because nothing was coming out of Microsoft Research that was commercially moving the bottom line for Microsoft. It was very much operating like the Xerox part. Yeah, where, where you know, like it was disconnected from the commercial aspects of the parent company and right around, I, I don't know, it was, you know, soon after Satya Nadella became CEO and I, I, I don't know what happened up there. <laughs> but Microsoft Research was clearly, you know, marked as a, as, as, uh, or, you know, not sufficiently tied into the overall strategy and needed to be sort of brought in and, and, and more closely tied to the product teams and maybe who knows, right? So so uh, it, it's in a much better place now where it's sort of very core tied to as many of the AI projects that they are doing commercially. But Frank ended up leaving Microsoft and working on building an open source version of his uh, stream processor. Uh, called Timely Data Flow. And the, I, I, by this point, I was working at Cockroach. And then we reconnected when I you know, reached out and I was like, hey, I'm excited about this Timely Data Flow thing that you're doing on your own. Uh, many of the other members of the NIAD project ended up just working at other companies like Google. Um, many of them ended up being members of the TensorFlow team, which is the, which was also a distributed sort of computing. And that was when I think I really made an impression on Frank to take commercialization seriously. Um, and I think I was also able to tell a more coherent story because I was able to say, hey, here's what Cockroach does. Here's how Cockroach builds a commercial product. Here's what it looks like. Here's how they market. Here's how they transparently share um how difficult it is to build a commercial product. Here's the kind of people that work there. Um, Frank came, uh, you know, had dinner with the Cockroach co-founders, like walked around the office. And I think that was when he it, it became a little more concrete in his brain, being like, oh, this is like a, this is a, this this could be nice. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting when you were sharing, first of all, it's fascinating to hear the story, right? Like just how that, so it's been interesting because, your time at Cockroach Labs gave you some of the perspective on what it takes to start a company, uh, you know, and especially uh, have smart people to work with and also have a perspective on what a go-to-market might look like. And that knowledge is what you shared with Frank and just at dinner and coming together kind of helped you begin uh, Materialize. Yes, and I, and, I, and I want to make clear that that wasn't just me. That was very much um, the cockroach co-founders were very generous with their time they sat down with frank as well um spencer in particular the ceo of cockroach spent a lot of time um not just a one-on-one -on -one with me but also at all hands meetings sort of being very open and transparent about you know the financials the fundraising the you know, we'd have the literal bank balance like up every week on the on 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 one of the slides. The um, you know the the latest customer meetings, like what what people were saying um, in these customer meetings when they thought Cockroach would be ready, and that gave me a lot of um, and also one on one. He would just very much tell me 
and and he and and I was very open about my interest in starting a company. So he would occasionally pull me in, be like, you know, like I'm going to have this meeting, and this is a distraction for you now, but you should come because this it's you should see how the sausage is made because it'll be useful for you later. Which is like a wonderful uh, mentor who went out of his way to make it easy for me to sort of do this. I mean, that's fascinating. I mean, I'm just knowing that. Like, I know I know Spencer, I've spoken to him a few times. Uh, he's all obviously very generous with the way he talks and very humble. Uh, but at the same time, I'm doing that is an extra effort uh, and inspiring someone else to do something, you know, which is very inspiring, you know, overall, I, when I look at it. It's fantastic. So, so right after that, uh, you chose um, uh, and decided that okay, we we got to do materialize. Uh, you start materialize. So, what was the specific problem that you felt um, you know materialize needed uh, to exist to solve uh, for users? You know uh, that you looked at the market and you felt this needs to be done. You know, so yeah, and and it, it, it's interesting because. That's how it, it, it sort of foreshadowed. That's how we 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 ended up at the name materialize, right? So back then it was the stream processing technology that was way 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 differentiating its capabilities to do low latency stream processing. Um, and of course, there's many. There's a few companies, mostly in Silicon Valley, who do stream processing at scale, right? But um, if you take it as a fraction of the companies that do any sort of analytics at all, it's a small fraction, right? So the companies that have complex analytics, if you take that as a market, you know, that's like, a, you know, $1,500 billion of spend a year. If you take the companies that are doing complex stream processing at scale, I mean, that's probably, you know, some single digit percent of that in terms of, uh, of, of, of spend because stream processing is horrendously complex. And so we felt that the need if if it was easy enough to do streaming as it was to do large scale batch processing a lot more people would be doing it like an order of magnitude more people would be doing it um most of the limitation is that it's extreme it requires an extreme amount of talent which is very constrained um and resources because you essentially have to staff up like you know it's like Minimum sort of ante to play this game is like 10 to 20 big data stream processing engineers, right? And like you can't pull it off less than that. And like how many companies have the scale and the resources? And and so it's like, you know, the companies that have mature stream processing, uh, no surprise, it's Uber, it's Netflix, and it's like five other companies like this. Um, and, 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 you know, a company that doesn't have that level of, re- by the way, it's also very much constrained to Silicon Valley, right? So even say a company like Walmart that has, um, you know, a lot of cutting edge technology, they have a Silicon Valley uh, Walmart labs. Um, and so geographically, it's also constrained to folks who are able to open an office in like a tech hub, right? And we felt that if it was a technology that was more accessible, you could get ubiquitous adoption because everybody think you know everybody who competes with these set of people also wants these capabilities because it's just moving moves the bottom line um and very quickly we settled on what this meant for us meant that um it had to be sql right the language in which people express computations that is the the, the most widespread language is sql so 
anybody who, this had to be accessible to anybody who wrote SQL analytics queries, right? And and when we when we wrote that out, we realized that the simplest way to communicate this to people who are maybe new to streaming was these are materialized views that stay always up to date, right? Like you don't want to build and maintain the stream processor that does the incremental computation to keep the materialized view up to date. You want to be able to access some cloud service, hook up your data pipelines and say, here's my data sources. They change. Here's the query. I want the answer to this query to always be as up to date as possible. That is the extent to which I want to, you know, care about the problem or, or, you know, some people might care to go deeper, but, you know, it has to be accessible to somebody who's willing to restrict themselves from going any deeper. And that was, that was when we decided to just name the company Materialize, right? It's like, what does it do? It materializes views over all kinds of changing data. Um, and it, it, it's sort of a good uh, hook to, to sort of make very clear what our mission is. Right. No, I mean it's it's a great name. I like I like the name because what I was trying to do when I was researching materialize, I was put I would put materialize and every time materialize view would pop up. You know, so it, so fundamentally, and also part of it uh, a reaction to uh, the cockroach name. I'm not going to lie, that one uh, not my favorite. Uh, you know, try to explain. I'm sure you uh, you experienced this. I had to explain to my mom. Um, that I was after my PhD going to work at Cockroach Labs. She uh, had had a fit about this, uh, so I took a. a <laughs> it's funny that you brought it up, especially Indian moms and Indian parents. I told my parents they didn't care about it. As like, okay, you're doing something, it's fine. But I had to tell my father-in-law about it, and he was particularly up, like upset about it because at the time I also had like a, I, I had a big offer from another big company, and I was like. Yeah, you know what? I don't want that. It's a very well-known name. I'm going to pick something called Cockroach. And my 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 father-in-law was like, "Am I? Did I get my girl married to the right guy?" <laughs> so we had that kind of a moment. But I had to explain to him what the company does without even you know, uh, without breaking his brain. So that's <laughs> funny. Yeah, my mom was just very upset that it wasn't Google. She was like, and I was trying to explain to her the the the, the founders spent. 10 years at Google, like it's, it's, it's got, it's, it's got a good, you know, set of people, but just the name was very much. uh, Yeah. It's, it's, it's funny that because the other offer had was from Google actually. And my father-in-law was like, what? (laughs) Uh, But, you know, I think uh, what I saw where I was in my career at the time, like um, I felt like I needed to come to a place and work with really inspiring leadership and a great uh, set of people, you know, like that's that's why uh, when I spoke to Cockroach and I looked at the product and everything about brutal honesty, about the way they brought things up, uh, especially the sales engineering team that we had was like, or what we have right now is fantastic, right? So so that's the environment I wanted to come in. And that's why so it was not something of a, do I want to go to Google, but more like, where do I want to go, right? That kind of thing. And so I can see what uh, led you to uh, do this, right? So I just wanted to go back uh, to what you were just mentioning with Materialize, right? Like it's a great name, obviously. Um, what were the other systems who have been in the market that you were looking at uh, at that time? I know, um, I've used like I I use a lot of Spark in my career, uh, right? And Spark streaming was a thing. But the way Spark streaming worked, where it had resilient distributed database and it would just uh, split stuff up in memory processing, and it was worked great. Um, and then you also have um, 
you know i think projects like flink and uh, uh, kafka had a project and then they brought kafka's case equal streaming uh, but they did it differently i think they had like they used a uh, i believe a rocks db engine if i'm not wrong but the, your approach is bringing timely data flow uh, uh, and build materialize uh, architecturally in a different way right so so uh, what got in, when you were trying to design w- w- were you looking at these systems and and then what and, and how that all came about yeah so yeah this is this is this is an excellent question because many of the architectural decisions in materialize are different to some of these other systems and more in line with uh traditional databases than you would think um particularly um Nyad was very much at the time a reaction to the Spark. Uh, Nyad, Nyad was um, there was a predecessor system at Microsoft Research called Dryad, um, and 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 Dryad Link. Um, if you're familiar with Link, the Microsoft uh, ORM like it's to me to me you know i i love sql and we've chosen sql but if there's like a fantasy world in which like there was a second query language link l-i-n-q is was the most beautiful ergonomic thing it was it, it died of course um it was part of the net platform um and so it's sort of its fate was very much tied to sort of net adoption which you know it kind of died down. Yeah, I, I remember that. Uh, I've read some stuff about it and uh, even attempts to revive it, but I don't think it kind of encapsulated into turning something. So. Uh, that's that's what I'm hoping, my keeping my fingers crossed for, is the sort of second coming of Link, because that then I will be very happy. But Maybe 10 years. <laughs> but anyway, um, Dryad Link was actually a predecessor system to Spark and did a lot of the, um, a lot of the uh, interesting architectural innovations come from Dryad Link. The Microsoft research team then moved on to Dryad. But Dryad Link very much had this RDD-esque uh, uh, framework of having large-scale batches of work that were scheduled out on distributed systems by a centralized scheduler, right? So the Spark also works this way. There's a scheduler, and the scheduler sends work items. So it say, says, you, you computer, like, first we'll shard the data set, right? So we have some data set A. Let's break it up into chunks that are manageable by a single machine. And then let's assign these chunks out to the resources that we have. This is also how Hadoop worked, right? And this is why you had Yarn and all these, you know, essentially schedulers. Uh, it was much, let's schedule work. How do we schedule work efficiently? The centralized scheduler sends work out. And then that machine, when it finishes, you know, the first step of the data pipeline and computes the result on its shard, it then notifies the scheduler and the scheduler sends it the next batch of work. Or, you know, sometimes these outputs have to be shuffled around, right? So the output of one. Right. Yeah. Which is, which is a big problem. The shuffling is a big intensive thing. I hated that. So most of the bottleneck in these systems is the shuffle, right? Because it essentially imposes this global interlock where all the machines are sort of seized up waiting for the work to be shuffled because they need it before they can begin their next work. And then you have all this problem where like one straggler or like one failed machine is holding up 90 other machines that are just sort of waiting for it to get done, but then actually it's failed. And now you got to reschedule the work. And most of the performance problems for anyone who's worked in this sort of world is around that, right? Um, There's another problem though which is if you want lower latency or if you want some intermediate outputs, 
One approach you can take is what's called micro-batching, which is you just make the batches smaller. And so you can get more frequent results. The problem with this is, if you think about it, as you scale down the batch size, the amount of work that the scheduler has to do explodes. And the, ske- and the scheduler becomes the bottleneck. Because if you, if you divide something in 100 chunks, you got 100 things to schedule. But if you want a micro-batch, you divide things into 10,000 chunks, they got 10,000 pieces of things to schedule, right? And and there's sort of a bottleneck beyond which you can't micro-batch further. And the sort of the 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 let the neo and the matrix realization is, you know, the only way past this is to stop scheduling, right? Like you can't have a centralized scheduler. Like there is no spoon. Like we gotta figure out a way to do this without a centralized scheduler. And data flow computation is very much the aspect of we're gonna fix the pipeline in place. We're going to break up this pipeline across many machines. We, we're going to shard, but individual n- processors are not going to wait to be told what to do next. They already know what to do next. They just have to wait for the data, right? So the interlock is around getting the data, but if you have all the data that you want, you don't wait for the scheduler to tell you to do the next unit of work. You just do the next unit of work and move on. And now you have a you, you remove the centralized scheduler from the bottleneck. And this is sort of the naiad slash data flow slash flink way of doing things, right? By this point, Databricks has moved on from Spark microbatching. So Spark streaming, the V1 of streaming at Databricks, uh, was this microbatch approach. They now have a new thing called Spark structured streaming, which is a data flow oriented stream processing there's further observations that the NIAD team had made once you get into data flow scheduling, which is state management. How do we manage state? So being good at state management is very important for doing complex queries because if you take a simple query like a like a sum, a streaming sum, there's not much state because you always have to remember one piece of information, which is I've summed up a bunch of values. I have the current running sum. When the next thing comes in, I'll add it to my running sum, and then I can throw away the other piece. So even if, you, even if you've got terabytes of input streaming through, at any point, you're only maintaining one large integer worth of data. Um, not every computation is this simple. So if you take a, and this is the one that tripped up everybody, which is how do you do the streaming join? Because if you have two streams coming in where you can join any input from the left stream, to anything in the right stream, you need to have a index representation of the right stream that you can look up. And the early attempts at solving this, particularly in the Kafka ecosystem, were to limit your joins to a window of time. So you say, you know, I can join something from the left against the last 10,000 things on the right. But what this means is the joint condition is now restricted into something that is correlated temporally between what's going on in these streams, which is a very complex um, thing to even like. And and so you can easily trip yourself up on this because um, what happens with some data that comes late? Oh, it's missed its window for joining. Okay, now what do we do to the results of the computation? Do we throw it out? Um, sometimes you can, but not always, right? Um, and the thing that fundamentally NIAD solved with like a giant sledgehammer was it was very good at maintaining gigantic amounts of state, right? 
And if you can maintain gigantic amounts of state um, efficiently at low latency as uh, the state is streaming, as the streams are, are, are going through, um, then you can express arbitrary computations. Now, my, my takeaway from all of this was if you can express arbitrary computations, you can now express SQL. And now people can just write the SQL queries that they wanted to write, and they can just forget about all of this, right? And that's the sort of dream of materializes. You go to, you make this accessible to folks who never, you know, want to worry about, you know, state management. There are other systems that, you know, for instance, uh, Flink, you can, you can store a lot of state on RocksDB, right? That ends up being pretty scalable, when you want to scale up, but it sort of imposes a minimum amount of resources that you need to use. So it doesn't actually scale down very well. So it sort of requires, it only sort of pencils out when you have terabytes and terabytes of state. So it works well for the Netflixes of the world who have terabytes and terabytes of streams and state. Um, It doesn't tend to work for um, business logic for, you know, commercial businesses that do not have, you know, telemetry data from 1 billion devices across the globe, right? So this is another thing that the recurring pattern is things that work for FANG scale companies or the tech technologies that work for the FANG scale companies are not oftentimes the right technologies for what I'll call mainstream American businesses because the, the scale that they operate at is unique. It is several orders of magnitude higher. And so they are making trade-offs that are going to pencil out because they're at that scale that aren't going to pencil out. And I think this is something Snowflake brilliantly understood, right? So Snowflake, I think, is the company that solved most of the problems for the most number of businesses in the world um, and probably doesn't solve data analytics at Google scale, nor do they want to. That's a good way to put that because when I was researching, I was trying to understand what would be a good correlation. So I feel like I feel like what you're trying to do is what Snowflake did for batch processing, but what you're trying to do for streaming. Is that a good way to like that is that is that is how we think about it internally. Like we want to be Snowflake for streaming. We think similarly, you know, a lot of people want to do analytics. And they couldn't until Snowflake came around. And now they can do batch analytics. And similarly, there are a lot of people who want to do streaming, but today are limited by the architectures that are available to them. And we want to be a similar solution that allows them to do streaming in the cloud. Fascinating. Now, I mean, the paper that you were talking about, I actually found that paper when I was researching. So for folks who are listening, I would say go, I haven't been able to read it, but I did find it. I read the initial extract of it, which is uh, the timely data flow paper from Microsoft in 2013. I think Frank McShury is one of the collaborators who is also the founder uh, with you at Materialize. Very good. So I wanted to dive into, because you were talking and we were hinting on the architecture I know recently you have looked at the architecture. You have a great background in distributed systems. So the way the architecture right now is you have compute uh, and store it separated. And uh, and you have the 
the arrange layer or the layer that connects to uh, the compute layer or storage layer, which is the SQL layer. And then you have multiple sources. So for all the folks who are listening, who want to start or who may have a need to start using, you know, materialize, how do you express that architecture to them? And how did that uh, architecture come about in terms of breaking it up, having S3, all those things? So uh, it's a great question, um, and and I'd love to sort of just go deep into architecture because just like I mean, it's the name of the podcast, right? So, <laughs> um, first thing about S three is well, one, it's very cheap, and that everyone knows that it's very cheap. It's the cheapest way to store your data. Um, you're not really like you're not really going to find a lower total cost of of storing stuff than an S three, but it's also extremely high bandwidth to read from. And you can have multiple readers. So it allows you to use that as a separation layer. So you can have multiple consumers consuming from a single shared storage without having to copy all that data all around. So it is where we keep all of the data at rest, right? So if you connect the data, so first of all, materialize as with any streaming system, you got to connect it to some source of, 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 of changing data, which typically is an OLTP database, right? So, where do you? Where is your data landing? Where's the first class place where it's landing? It's an OLTP database like Cockroach or Postgres or, you know, and you might have a mature architecture where you're feeding that through Kafka to use that as a way to separate your systems, right? So Kafka is a wonderful system for decoupling your various systems that 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 have data, right? So Cockroach natively outputs data to Kafka, change data capture, um, as do many other databases. Um, we also support just reading directly from Postgres. Um, because a lot of people with Postgres who, 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 who want this, who, who um, don't have Kafka yet. We also have people who have Postgres who use Debezium to do change data capture in a Kafka. But anyway, all of that data, you've got data in motion. It needs to land into materialize. So first thing we do is we have these data sources, right, which are clusters of compute that can read your changing data and save it to S3 permanently, durably, right? Um, this is very important the 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 thing that our sources do is this data that is coming to us may or may not have timestamps that we can trust. So it's coming from Postgres. There are timestamps that we can trust in the form of the uh, log sequence number, right? So Postgres has durable log sequence numbers that are guaranteed not to change. That the, the time at which the transaction took effect. Um, the Actually, it's not the time at which the transaction took effect. It's the time at which um, it was written to the log, but then there's also the, the the transaction ID that is the time at which it takes. So you have a ordered sequence that is trustworthy. Kafka, you don't have this, right? So a Kafka top, a partition, a single partition of Kafka does have an offset that goes up and down, but you do not have an ordering guarantee between partitions. And if you are running, if you're running Kafka at scale using multi-partition, so there's sort of a question of, of in what order did these events actually happen. The first thing our sources do is they assign a, a, a durable order and then write that down to S3. At this point onwards, we can guarantee serializable isolation for queries because if you have two different views over this data, we want to give you the correctness guarantee that these things align with each other, right? So if if any non-determinism is made deterministic at this point, we may have to make an arbitrary choice. Or if you give us enough metadata, we will respect that choice that you've already made. Um, and so our sources are very much a necessary 
component of all our downstream correctness guarantees. So we write all that down to S3. So, so if I can ask a question, uh, just so the, one of the most critical things you're doing is to make sure that for consistency, which is important, is the durability keep built into the sources that you're doing when you're reading and storing it into S3. So that's like, a, I would say, uh, like a recipe that you have cooked into materialize, right? Because that's important. And we actually use CockroachDB for that because CockroachDB is the scalable metadata layer that allows us to do this across. You may have hundreds of sources, right? And then you you care about the order between all of these sources because you may later join these sources together, right? And CockroachDB, um, uh, Snowflake uses FoundationDB for, for, for a similar purpose, which is it's the scalable metadata layer that is the sort of on which all the consistency guarantees are based on top of, right? Uh, we use Cockroach. Uh, well, we knew it well. Um, so that was one advantage it had. Uh, but really, you need a database that has serializable guarantees. And real, realistically, there are only really two, there's only FoundationDB and CockroachDB that are pretty battle-tested at scale at serializable isolation. You can use a serializable single-node database, but then, you know, that has its own scaling limits, um, or you could use Zookeeper, right? So those are the, but um, those are sort of your options. Yes, which is what we didn't want to get into. It's also kind of a nightmare to manage. So I, I, I know I cut you off from the stream of thought you had. Uh, why don't you go back to that architectural completion then? Because I feel like we need to bring that up because that's a very important recipe that you've cooked into to guarantee consistency for folks who are going to use. So I wanted to kind of highlight that too. So thank you. No. Once the data has been durably recorded into S3, um, it can be used by different units of compute. We call these units of compute clusters, but if you're a Snowflake user, you can think of it as a virtual warehouse. So you you may be an organization and you may have lots of different people. They want isolation guarantees because they may have, you know, someone may have a P1 use case that cannot go down. Somebody else may have a P3 use case, and then there may be an intern, you know, typing like a monkey on a typewriter, right? Like crashing all the time. And and these people all want guarantees from each other, right? So what you do is you spin up a cluster, just like in Snowflake, you spin up a virtual warehouse. This cluster can reference any of the data that from any of the sources. Now you have role-based access control to decide on a policy level if some sources are special or not. But in architecturally, you, you have access to all of these sources that can come in. And inside these cluster, is a, the, when I, what I call a cluster could be a multi-node thing, right? It's a it's a it's a logical isolate logically isolated unit. This runs a timely data flow scale out set, uh, set unit of computation, right? And this so if you you, you spin up a three XL cluster, you'll get uh, you know four machines. If you spin up four XL cluster, you'll get eight machines, etc. Um, you get all the benefits of scale out compute that you want. Uh, that can reference any of those sources. And then the you define oh, that one, you interact with SQL, you say, you know, create, you, you can just run a select query that'll spin up a transient data flow, compute the result. Or you can type create materialized view that will create this uh, data flow that is long lived, um, which will then write the results of that materialized view back through a different S3 collection, right? Which can be, again, referenced and used by downstream um, 
users, right? So you might have, say, a data services team, a centralized platform team that creates and maintains a bunch of enriched materialized views that join across and uh, a whole bunch of data sources and then create these curated collections that are used, say, by a serving team that is serving this as part of a live application. Um, and they might want different levels of um you know, replication. And by the way, all these clusters, each individual cluster can be replicated to whatever sort of replication unit you need. And you have sort of isolation, compute compute level isolation that if your, if somebody else's cluster goes down, your cluster is completely unaffected. Well, that's awesome. It's it's fascinating to know when folks are trying to build these systems. I mean, you have to think about how, compute works. You have to think about how storage works. And then you also have to start thinking about, okay, that intern, <laughs> you know, what will he do? And then build systems like that. And it's it's fascinating when, you know, when I was listening to you that as a company, when you're building systems, you have to consider all these different folks and different events and use cases when you're building a system. It's not as easy as, hey, we need to solve that problem. And I'm also very glad that you brought up the idea that it's not the big problems that big companies are trying to solve. We have to solve problems for a lot of other people who are also trying to solve uh, regular problems, everyday events and things like that, uh, that materialize is kind of going after. So, which is really great. Um, when I was, uh, you know, thinking about, uh, you know, some of the things that you do and my history of using Spark, we used to have transformation, then we have to do an action. Like we basically run a bunch of things through RDDs and then you drive the actual action, which is a count or some sort of an aggregate function in the end, right? Uh, but what what I have had in my life, in my career, I'm fascinated by data, right? And I haven't had any role in my career where I have not interacted with data. So the whole idea of being able to take the data, to wrangle it to my needs and to get value out of that, it's not something that just me, do. I do. There are so many people who are trying to do that. And I see one of the biggest value props that you have uh, with Materialize is the join capability, right? The ability to take an OLTB database and a table there and you have a Spark, uh, not a Spark topic, but like a Kafka topic where you have some data, you're able to bring that together and uh, build a materialized view on top of that and then have that accessible to complete a data story, right? Uh, so that was just my understanding from my research. Do I have the complete picture? Uh, why don't you maybe expand that a little bit more? Yeah, I, I think I think very much um, Materialize is consciously designed for organizations, right? Materialize is a platform for organizations and organizations definitionally have a bunch of different people who have a bunch of different responsibilities. Um, and a single system that is built for a single team is not going to be enough. Timely data flow is actually enough for enough for a single team, right? Like that's an open source project. You can try, you can build and run, and people do deploy this in production to compute large scale things, right? Um, and and that's great, but it's not for an organization. It's a single unit of shared compute that if you installed one bad data flow in, you could crash the whole cluster. Building or building products for organizations is requires having to care about all of these other other um, isolation and and um, sort of guarantees against not not um, not because they're malicious right but 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 because they have different objectives right yeah so to, when you were saying that I 
was thinking about the fact that when you're building it for organizations, you have to consider different use cases, right? So what kind of use cases are you seeing people adopt, uh, you know, materialized for? Of course, we would, we're, we're not talking about a big scale companies like Netflix or, uh, you know, Google trying to use that or Uber using it or Twitter <laughs> even using it. But rather, we're talking about uh, some specific use cases that you have seen that have surprised you. So tell me about some use cases uh, that Materialize solves and also some use cases where you saw, oh, that's a surprising way of kind of using Materialize. Tell me about that if you, if you have an instance. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we have a customer, a Fortune 500 company that is deploying Materialize to they have many factories. Uh, these factories have assembly lines where they build products and they are trying to get real-time alerts to their assembly line engineers uh, because the assembly line engineers have an idea of, hey, if this if if this thing happens and this thing happens, I need to know immediately uh, because they 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 in their manufacturing process they have a tremendous amount of input waste, so they're they 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 you know hundreds of millions of dollars of inputs that get wasted for you know 30 minutes while some machine somewhere else is spinning producing output when really it should have been stopped because that intermediate output can can go no further in the line right so um they currently have these alerts in a batch system the batch system is too slow uh and as a result they waste hundreds of millions of dollars worth of product uh, per year, um, and they want to move that batch system alerts to streaming. Now, that that batch system is you know twenty thirty years worth of SQL queries that are running on prem that are built and accrued up. Um, you know, it's it's you know thirty forty lines of you know common table expression SQL, and so it's not trivial to understand or even port right. So they need a system like Materialize so that they can port that. You know, as faithfully as it exists today, and then get to you know seconds of latency end to end to when they hit hit that alert on the screen, uh, so that they can take action sooner. So that that is uh, you know so that's a use case that that I personally love because uh, you know it, it it's saving people money. Um, we also have uh, you know a customer, a fintech company, using us to. Uh, uh, Reduce to 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 catch and identify uh, fraud, as, because with financial fraud, typically the fraudsters know they have a limited window of time to steal as much money as possible, and so this is a very straightforward. You know, from when we have the input signals that we've modeled out in Batch, and they use Snowflake, so so they've got all of these things modeled out in Snowflake, which is typically for an analytics journey. Um, you want to start in batch, right? Like you're just trying to understand what's going on. So like, here's our historical performance. Here's the signals we had at the time. And I'm going to like, sort of, you have a data science team or a data analytics team that's sort of playing around building these models. And then eventually go, you know what? When we know this and this, we need to shut that thing down like immediately. Moving that to production for most companies involves going to the production team saying, hey, can you build this feature that when you know this and you know this, take this action. But then the data model that you have in your batch might rely on inputs that are coming from two different databases upstream in um and can't be joined against each other in a trivial fashion so now you're talking about a multi-quarter process to build out and 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 and, and implement that feature and and you know most features die at that point right um 
And so they're using materialize to move that from batch to streaming so that they can, you know, take action when that fraud. I mean, that's good because, you know, you I wouldn't want uh, a fraud to happen and me taking a decision like half an hour later, right? So you want uh, the fraud use cases to happen more as real time as is possible within the, you know, limitations that we have available to us, right? Uh, so, I mean, that's a pretty good use case. Um, I was... Good. I was thinking when you were saying that one of the most interesting things that I am that has been throughout this conversation that is very evident is that you haven't changed anything uh, when it comes to how a user interacts with the solution that you have with materialize, which is more fascinating because if you go back to India, even today, you know we are still studying SQL. Every university in the US, everywhere around the world, SQL is not going to go away as the language of how you interact with data. So it's great that you've brought that. SQL layer and have kept that uh, rather than going to a fashion of document, you know, the way you interact as a JSON or something, which is, even though it's fascinating for web applications, I don't think it's like the right language for, uh, you know, data. So what are your thoughts around that? One thing I love about SQL is, well, one is you got to meet people where they are. You got to build software for the what, what people already know, and more importantly, interact with the systems they already have. Because people are not going to, let's let's say we built this most amazing data system and we sort of take it out to market. People are not going to react by saying, voila, like, all right, let me just throw out all of my other stuff and start from scratch with your system. Like your system has to live in an ecosystem that has a dozen other tools and technologies. Like there's a BI layer, there's a, you know, data integration layer, there's a lineage, there's a governance, there's, and all of these systems and tools speak SQL, right? So how are you going to build a parallel in, and, and unfortunately streaming has for a while been the sort of parallel set of, tools that is divorced from the mainstream set of tools, which is why you need to build and staff a completely separate team. So um, that was very much what we wanted to avoid. We wanted to take this to the mainstream companies that had not yet had the luxury of building and staffing a streaming team. That said, that doesn't mean I don't, you know, late at night fantasize about a world in which, uh, you know, Link wins. <laughs> One of the questions I want to ask is for folks who are listening. And of course, they've, we've had a great conversation looking at the architecture, some of the decisions that you've taken in building Materialize the way it is. What is your advice to data teams who are going to start using Materialize? Like, how should they look at Materialize in a very simple way uh, to look at the problems they solve for them? So Materialize is built for those data teams that are thinking about going to streaming for the very first time, right? So it is, in my view, the easiest way to get started with streaming. It meets you where you are. If you are familiar with a data warehouse or a cloud data warehouse, Materialize should feel very intuitive and approachable as a way to get started with streaming. Um, You should be able to get up and running and getting and get streaming results in just a single day. Um, the, the most annoying part will be um, connecting up your sources of data. Um, that's always the most annoying part of using any data tool. Expand on the uh, the sources right now. I know you have a Kafka connector right now, and you also have, I believe, from Postgres. Yeah. What else? 
we will pull data from Postgres. So we connect directly and from your upstream Postgres's database, we look in, we look like a read replica. So it's like, hey, I'm a new read replica that showed up and I wish to subscribe to your log of transactions. Um, every Postgres database has the ability to support this because it um, supports read replication. Or we pull data from Kafka, right? So if you already have a Kafka cluster, we can connect to that and pull data immediately. Uh, we're looking to expand this over time. So you know, ultimately, we can pull data from wherever it is, right? So uh, today, Postgres and Kafka are the uh, supported options. So are you open sourcing any of those elements? So, you know, are the folks who are trying to like, uh, like kind of working on making an open connector that allows other systems and teams to kind of build connectors to uh, materialize as has that been a thought? So we we view Kafka as that ecosystem and it's an, it's an ecosystem that Kafka does very, very well. So, you know, we're partners with Confluent um, that has a wonderful connector ecosystem, but also the open source Kafka ecosystem as well. Some some of our customers use Confluent. Some of our customers use uh, just uh, open source or Amazon managed Kafka. Um, we will connect to your streaming data, whatever flavor of Kafka it is. Got it. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, they're leading the pack too, so that ecosystem is already kind of built out, and you kind of there's you're leveraging that in a way too, right? So that's great. Yeah, we we want to be a downstream system for building analytics and sophisticated applications that have a real time data component. We have no desire to replace Kafka. Very cool. So I was thinking like when you were sharing that, when I asked you, hey, what does a data team do? And you had this perfect 30 second pitch. So I was like, hey, there's a co-founder and a CEO. <laughs> you know. So uh, I wanted to, as we close, you know, it's in a, your story is really inspiring. I mean, I'm, I have to say that not to also being a fellow Indian, right? It's always great to meet other uh, CEOs. So how has uh, the transition been to being a CEO from being, uh, you know, I would say a researcher or a doctorate, uh, you know, of that subject? How has that been for you? I would say I feel like I went in as eyes wide open as possible, mostly due to the help and transparency of Spencer, right? So he very much opened the can of worms and showed me sort of, you know, I guess mixing some metaphors here, but sort of pulled up the rug and showed me all the stuff under the rug and said, you know, are you ready for this? And, um, and sort of, I had a like, I had a nice long think about that and sort of opted in saying, you know what, like I am. So, um, you know, fi fundraising, financing, um, how to pitch, um, how to be the, the behind the scenes management, board management, um, uh, all of these aspects of, of, of starting and running a company, um, I feel very lucky that I, uh, you know, got to see all of that before taking the plunge. And so I sort of did it on an opt-in basis. That's good. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, now as a CEO, right, uh, what are the few more, few things that we can expect coming out from Materialize going into the, you know, the second half of this year and going into next year? Are you, what are you working on that's really exciting and cooking, you know, so... So um, I will drop a teaser here. We have some very, very exciting announcements uh, coming out in September. Uh, we will be at uh, Kafka Current, um, uh, the conference um, in, in the fall, as well as DBT Coalesce. Uh, we have a lot of exciting announcements uh, this fall. So if you're interested in uh, staying up to date, uh, you know, go to materialize.com. Uh, we have a newsletter and a blog that you can subscribe to. 
uh, we have some big announcements coming. Um, I'll just leave you with a teaser there today. Hey, if, if this podcast does breaking news, I mean, <laughs> come on, I will take that, right? <laughs> no, thank you so much for, uh, you know, kind of sharing that. I mean, for, for me, it's been fascinating, like uh, going in, learning a little bit more about materialize and having you on the podcast, right? And uh, I always ask this question uh, because, uh, and especially in your case, it's truly inspiring because now you're a CEO, uh, you move from India, which is like leaving behind family and friends and building something new in the comp- in a country, learning, interacting with new people. So for students, um, not just in India, but around the world, what's your advice to folks who are trying to kind of lean in? Uh, what would be a one, twos and threes? I mean, you don't have to give all three, maybe a, a couple of advice to folks who are trying to get on that path, you know, so. I think being an engineer is a solid, uh, solid start. Um, I didn't sort of want to become a CEO, um, you know, until much, much later, I'd wanted to become an engineer. Um, it was only after I'd been an engineer and found out that I'm kind of a mediocre engineer that I was looking uh, <laughs> for a different job. <laughs> um, That's pretty humble of you. <laughs> um, what has worked for me has been uh, sort of back to the early, early, or the earliest question about liberal arts is um, getting a broad education in things other than just the your your major right so a lot of the skills that i need to make use of today are things that i acquired in you know for instance clear writing and communication right i think that that's not something that is in the main curriculum of a computer science major Nevertheless, there are other classes that emphasize that, and it is you are going to really, um, or at least I very much appreciate that I had the opportunity to study those. Um, I would say um, studying, a, and it, I, I don't want to be prescriptive, right, about, you know, you have to study history and economics. Those are the two that worked for me, but my point is more studying three or four different things and synthesizing those together ends up being extremely valuable so i would i would try and stay broad for as long as possible right oh that's awesome i think uh, what you shared and your your journey is like a pretty interesting contradiction right in a way that to what people believe that i have to focus on a particular major and just dive into that and i will learn everything that i need to learn about life but i think when I just unraveling what you have kind of shared is like there is a lot more space to acquire knowledge that can lead you to an interesting uh, position in life. So that's that's always good to know. All right. So I just want to say with that, we will end the podcast, Arjun. I mean, again, I am truly honored to have you on the podcast. And, uh, you know, I'm going to follow Materialize very closely. Uh, and also see, uh, you know, bring that up in conversation with people I speak to. Uh, definitely a company uh, that is doing some exciting stuff. Uh, so thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun for me as well. Thank you.